to Jonah. This seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give him shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. I am so angry and I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than a 180,000 people, who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. Thank you. Um, good morning. Uh, it's lovely to see you. Uh, it feels a bit funny. Um, I'm off after this, um, so it feels a bit funny to uh, be saying goodbye uh, this morning, uh, but it, I've really loved my time here. I, I feel like I feel like there's been lots of explaining and apologising at this conference about the way that it's set up and reminding people that there's one speaker here for a bit and there's going to be another speaker and, and things like that. And um, I think one of the things that I've, I, that I've missed is that I haven't been as... Um, had as long with you guys to get to know as many of you as possible. Um, when I go up North Island, my church will be there, a bunch of people. I usually go to North Island and equip, so I know a bunch of people there. But it would have been lovely to have the whole week, um, to have lots of uh, morning tea chats and things like that. Uh, but uh, you'll be well served as Jay opens up Matthew's Gospel. I'm going to sneak a little bit into Matthew's Gospel today, but um, I'm sure he'll do a much better job with that. Um, I'm feeling quite tired, um, so uh, I'm going to pray for my own uh, focus and energy, and I'm going to pray that for you as well, uh, because we have the great privilege of sitting under God's Word again, um, and uh, and chapter 4 is just kind of like, wow, okay. Um, so there's going to be some great stuff for us to learn about God from here. So uh, will you pray with me that we don't uh, miss this great opportunity? Heavenly Father, um, Lord, we just are so thankful um, that you have uh, constantly been feeding us by your word, and we pray that you do it again this morning. Uh, Lord, give us the energy and focus we need to uh, hear what you have to say. 
and not just hear what you have to say, but please move our hearts to uh, feel what you feel for people, to uh, be shaped, to love what you love, to break for what your heart breaks for. And Lord, we do pray that you'll do that work in us uh, for your glory. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Uh, they say that opposites attract. Uh, one of the, um, one of the uh, great disappointments for you guys that you don't even realize is that with Equip set up with this kind of split thing is that you don't get the chance to meet Adele, my wife. Um, I've got a picture of her. That's Adele there. Uh, we've been married for uh, 16 years. And over 16 years, I've often told people that I married up, uh, that Adele is my better half. And up until this point, no one has ever disagreed <laughs> or corrected me. Uh, That's a picture of Adele. We've got uh, three mostly wonderful children. I say mostly wonderful, not because some of them are wonderful and some of them are not. They're wonderful most of the time. Uh, But as Adele and I have gone on in marriage for 16 years, uh, we've realized we are very opposite people. Uh, A little while back, we did the Myers-Briggs personality types. I don't know if you know that thing. Uh, Some people love it. Uh, my wife Adele, my loving, caring, sensitive wife, is an INFJ. Does that mean anything to anyone? Is there an INFJ here? Yeah, they're probably a bit too timid to put their hand up because now everyone's looking at them. INFJs, they are creative nurturers, they are sensitive, they're also a little bit reserved. The private sort, they cherish time alone, time to reflect, the peace and quiet. Guess what I got? So you have INFJ. Each person, each of those letters has an opposite letter. I got ESTP. Those are the exact opposite. Every indicator we are different. ESTPs are energetic, action-oriented. They prefer to keep things fast-paced and silly rather than emotional or serious. Because of our personalities, there are times in our life where Adele and I can really want different things. Our desires don't line up. An example is when we go away on a holiday. Uh, In holidays, first thing in the morning, I'm up. What do I want to do? I want to go outside and play. I want to see the sights. I want to get on the road. I want to get on with doing stuff. But what does Adele want to do? Well, INFJs, what does she want to do? She wants to lie in bed. She wants to take things slow. She wants peace and quiet. She wants time to reflect and savor the moment. Now, we're mature enough to have worked out how to navigate and uh, negotiate that. This photo was taken on our 16th wedding anniversary. The reason we're so happy is because I've spent the afternoon riding my bike and Adele has spent the afternoon sitting in a cafe reading a book. (laughs) We've worked out how we can both have an enjoyable holiday together, and it's not always been doing separate things. Uh, We've worked out how we can serve each other uh, by giving each other what we really want. Uh, but the things that kind of really float our boat, the things that make us tick. And it's been really helpful for us as a couple to know how each other are wired like that. It's really important for us to know how each other work. It's really important to know how we can live in sync with each other because of the way our hearts are wired, the things that we desire. Now, here in the book of Jonah, we've been presented with what God desires, what, what makes God tick. And it's not about what He wants to do on a holiday It's about what's on his heart, what he's passionate about. And the big, massive questions that come at us at this final chapter of Jonah 
is, do you desire what God desires? Are you in sync with God? Does your heart beat for the same thing that God's heart beats for? Does your heart break for what breaks God's heart? So far in Jonah, we've put together a pretty comprehensive picture of God. Uh, Remember Jonah from back at the beginning? Jonah is teaching us a theological lesson. It's teaching us about who God is and what He is like. Uh, And in chapter 1, we see that God is the sovereign Lord. Chapter 2, we see He is the gracious Saviour. Chapter 3, we see He is the merciful judge. And and we put it all together. And in chapter 4, we see that God is the compassionate evangelist. He is the compassionate evangelist. And we're building this picture and this, this lingering question is there. Are you okay to worship a God like this? Are you living in sync with a God like this? Does your heart line up with a God like this? Does your life and your purpose and your hopes and your dream, do they line up with a God like this? You see, all the way through the book of Jonah, um, the prophet is presented as out of sync with this God. His heart is beating for something else. He is heading, sometimes quite literally, in the opposite direction to God. And if that wasn't yet apparent, it is painfully clear as we come to Jonah chapter 4. I got really angry at Jonah last night. I got really angry. Someone was wanting to um, put Jonah chapter 2 to... They, you know, it's, a, it's a poem, it's a psalm, they, they, they made a song about it and they're going like, to um, perform it up in the North Island Equip and they're asking me if that's okay. And as I'm reading Jonah chapter 4, I'm like, no way, I don't want Jonah's words to be sung, but the, you know, like, we're going to do it anyway. I got really angry at Jonah last night because of chapter 4. But like, I don't know, I don't know what sort of person you are. Are you someone who likes um, happy ever after Disney style endings? Do you like that sort of thing? Well, if you do, then just stop reading at chapter 3, because chapter 4 will get under your skin. I mean, if up to chapter 3, Jonah has turned himself around, Nineveh have turned themselves around, God has turned up and He's shown compassion, and like at the end of chapter 3, everyone comes up smelling like roses. You could put at the end of chapter 3, and they all lived happily ever after, it's high fives all round. But no, we get chapter 4, and chapter 4 gets under our skin, I mean, uh, looking at verse 10 of chapter 3. Here, verse 10 of chapter 3. When God saw what they, the Ninevites, did and how they turned from their evil ways, He had compassion on them and did not bring upon them the destruction He had threatened. There's the feel-good ending. And then, bam, chapter 4, verse 1. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. Now, Nineveh have turned from their evil ways. God has shown them mercy. Jonah should be stoked. I mean, on one level, he should be stoked because he's a prophet of God and that's kind of his job is to warn people of God's coming judgment and, and, and offer them God's mercy and grace and, and when they respond uh, in repentance and faith, job done, well done, Jonah. But he's, he, he's also, he should be stoked because he's going to leave Nineveh with his head still attached to his body. That's kind of winner, winner, chicken dinner. But Jonah, it turns out, this is actually a really bitter pill to swallow. He's angry. As a matter of fact, he's furious. He is incandescent with rage. In the original language, there is no stronger way to express Jonah's displeasure. It says he is burning with anger. Literally, it it says in verse 1, literally, 
it was exceedingly evil to Jonah. It was exceedingly evil to Jonah. What God has done in showing and mercy and grace on this repentant city, Jonah calls that evil. He cannot believe that Nineveh repented. He cannot believe that God relented, that judgment has been averted, that the city has been spared. I mean, if you're Jonah, if, 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 if that sort of thing is exceedingly evil to you, you've really, you've really kind of flipped your lid. But that the sovereign Lord, that the gracious Saviour, that He would act true to His character, that He would be the compassionate evangelist, well, Jonah the prophet feels betrayed. He feels betrayed, not only because Jonah himself is somehow implicated in this process, remember, uh, we were worried that uh, Jonah might, um, we, we thought that Jonah might go to Nineveh and that if they repented, then he somehow has become a traitor to his own country. Uh, he's, had a, he's had a hand in the salvation of the capital of this evil empire and, and Jonah, he's kind of, he couldn't be more angry, but you almost get the sense that Jonah here is angry at himself. He's angry at himself. He knew that God was like this. He knew that this could happen. If you look there in verse 2, have a look at verse 2. Jonah prays, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? They tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. You see, Jonah tells us now why he ran away. It's crystal clear. He ran away because he knew the character of God. He knew what God was like. He knew what God was like and he didn't want to give him the chance. Uh, When we looked at chapter 1, we wondered whether Jonah was a chicken uh, because he was scared of Nineveh or whether he was a rat because he didn't want them to receive God's mercy. And it turns out that Jonah wasn't a chicken. He was a rat. Have a look again halfway through verse 2. Halfway through verse 2, Jonah says, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Jonah's cranky. And what, and what, what makes him even more cranky is he knew it would happen. I think there's a special level of frustration and disappointment you feel when you can preempt the problem. Uh, when, you, when you're saying, uh, you're worried that this thing might happen and you know it's possible uh, and then it happens, right? Uh, I'd like to show you um, this picture. It hangs in my house. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, I'm showing it to you because it is the most expensive picture I own. Uh, it's not expensive because it was taken by a famous artist. It was taken by me. Uh, but the reason it's the most expensive picture I own is because we took it uh, when we were traveling in Europe and we had one morning left in Paris Uh, And we thought, uh, before we had to catch our flight back home to Australia, uh, and even though we knew, even though we knew we were cutting things fine, we decided to squeeze in one more museum. And this museum, the Musée d'Orsay, Adele got all INFJ there. She got, she didn't want to be rushed. She wanted to savour the moment. She wanted to enjoy the peace and quiet and the creativity of the museum. And we, just as I was worried about burnt through all of our time and ended up missing our flight back to Australia. That is why it's the most expensive picture that hangs in my house, because it cost me two flights home from Europe. 
But the thing that really, really, really irritates me most is not the cost, but it's because I, I knew we were taking the risk. I knew this could happen, but we did it anyway. Jonah's feeling the same frustration, but to just a whole other level. He knew this would happen. He knew God would do this because he knows what God is like, because he knows his Bible. And he really knows his Bible because uh, what he says there in the second half of uh, verse 2, that uh, gracious and compassionate, uh, slow to anger and abounding in love, it's actually a perversion of Exodus 34. I'll read it out for you, you don't have to turn it back there. It's a perversion of Exodus 34. Back in Exodus, Israel has experienced at first hand uh, the, the blessing and power of God as He's rescued them out of slavery in Egypt and, and, and they're, they're, they're following Moses, the leader that God has provided and it seems that at the first possible moment, right when God is giving His law to Moses on Mount Sinai, the people just kind of wander off and they start worshipping the golden calf. And God is ready to rightfully punish them, but He relents. And then as He gives His law to Moses a second time, God reveals His name and He reveals His character and He reveals Himself as this. Uh, It says this in Exodus 34, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love, to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. You see, Jonah knows his Bible. He knows that this is what God is like. And now Jonah is kind of chucking it back in God's face. I knew you wouldn't destroy the Ninevites. I knew it. I knew it from the start. Flippin' gracious and merciful God. And he's angry and he's ticked off and he's so angry he would rather be dead. Uh, verse 3, now Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Now for Jonah, and this is almost, it's, it's almost appalling to say this out loud, for Jonah, he believes it would be better to die. It would be better to die than to live in a world where God shows His grace and His compassion to His enemies. He is so angry. If God is going to be the sovereign Lord, if He's going to be the gracious Saviour, if He's going to be the merciful Judge, well, Jonah says, I would rather be dead than live with a God like that. And God responds to this kind of torrent from Jonah with this, just a question. Verse 4. Verse 4, But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? And that question just hangs there. Jonah's got nothing to say. He's got no comeback for God at this point. He just stomps off to the east of the city. He sets himself up a deck chair, builds a little shelter, and he waits and hopes for fireworks to come down from heaven. Judgment to come, not compassion. And one of the reasons for this is Jonah wanted God's grace for himself. How thankful was he in chapter 2 that God had rescued him, that God was the gracious Savior. God wants, you know, so Jonah wants God's blessing and mercy for himself, but he doesn't want it for others. 
We see this clearly through that kind of weird little incident with the vine and the worm uh, in verses 5 to 11. Uh, there's the vine, there's the worm, there's a scorching wind. Um, it only exposes, uh, kind of through that, God exposes Jonah's desire uh, only for grace for himself and not for others. Take a look at verse 5. Verse 5 there. Uh, Jonah had gone out and sat down at, that place, at a place east of the city where he had made himself a shelter. He sat down in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head and to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. It, I heard a little giggle. It, it, I think you're supposed to laugh or cry at the ridiculousness of Jonah. Here he is, sitting in his little shelter on the east of the city, waiting for God's wrath and destruction to rain down. Now, it's, it's hot and his shelter isn't very good and so God produces a vine and it gives Jonah some rest from the searing Middle Eastern sun. And, and once again, even after what Jonah has said to God, once again, God graciously provides for Jonah. Despite his waywardness, despite all that he's done, God continues to care for this prophet. Um, but as though to reveal Jonah's true heart, God then sends the worm. Verse 7, verse seven but at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed down on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than live. You see, Jonah reacts again and, and, and Jonah, he, he again, he, he, he flies off the handle. He's completely ropeable. He again is angry enough to die he uses almost exactly the same words to express his anger and then he did about his anger of, about the way God responded in mercy and compassion to Nineveh. Jonah's so angry he could die. He could die because he no longer has his precious little vine. If he can't have that, then he doesn't think that life is worth living. Now, it's right to think that's a bit extreme. That's a bit over the top. What's going on? Well, we see what's going on with these questions that God asks in verse 9. Verse 9, But God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. And I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant. Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. You see, this is God's lesson for Jonah. He's exposing Jonah. God is revealing Jonah's heart. God is saying, Jonah, you're like those people of mine who are more concerned about their bank balance or their next holiday or finding the right partner than they are for the people in their street who don't know me. Surely you can see the city full of people and animals that I have created. Surely you can see that they are more deserving of my concern than a shelter over your head. How selfish can you be, Jonah, that you care more for a plant than for a city down there who I want to have mercy on? 
You see, Jonah wanted God's grace and mercy. He wanted a domesticated God, a God that does his bidding. He wanted God to love what he loved and hate what he hated. And I think at times there can be a lot of us in Jonah. We can be very happy to enjoy the grace of God, happy to gather together and fill our heads with knowledge from the Bible, happy to hang out with people who are like us, you know, maybe they're equally middle class and university educated like us. And we're very happy to completely ignore the city and the people around us who don't know the God that loves them, who don't know the Sovereign Lord, who don't know the gracious Saviour, who don't know their merciful judge. And we see, why this is, uh, we see why this is the case for Jonah in verse 11. Uh, the reason becomes very clear. Don't, Jonah himself does not share God's concern for the lost. Verse 11, God says, And should have concern on that great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 100,000 people. What's going on here? Why is God so concerned for that great city of Nineveh? Why does God care for that city? Why does God love lost people? Well, it's worth slowing down, and uh, this might be a bit rude on a Wednesday morning, uh, slowing down and doing some uh, harder thinking about God, because uh, there's something that's really important for us to understand here uh, in Jonah, and for us to understand is we're going to get to get to know God as who is the compassionate evangelist. Um, uh, theologians rightly say that God is impassable. Uh, that is to say, He is not subject to us. Uh, he is not the victim of our emotions. God is not at our beck and call. Uh, and see, God's impassibility, His freedom from being subject to pain or emotions, it means He's free from being subject to pain or emotions caused by another. And because of that, God is completely self-sufficient. It's called His aseity. He does not need anything. And so what that means here is that God is not saving people because He is lonely. God is not saving people because he wants some help. God is not saving people because someone told him he had to do it. God is to save people because he is full of love. He doesn't use his people, he doesn't use us in evangelism, he doesn't use us to tell people about Jesus because he couldn't do it without us. We're not the saviors of the world. It's not that God um, wants us to be involved in His mission because He is reliant upon our help. He doesn't need any help at all. But God graciously involves us because He wants us to be like Him. He wants our heart to beat for the same thing. That's what's going on here with Jonah. He wants us to share His love for people. And so He invites us to be involved. He generously brings us on board to share in His mission. And so when He goes to the great lengths of sending His only Son to take our punishment on the cross, to hang there, bearing our guilt and our sin and our shame, He, he does it not because He has to, not because He needs something from us, not because He was our victim. Jesus died on the cross because He, God in Himself, chose to love us. 
And so as God looks at this city of Nineveh, full of 120,000 people, as He looks at this lost, who, who don't know their right hand from their left, His heart is filled with compassion. He's concerned. And it's not because He's obliged to, and it's not because He's the victim of their mistakes. No, that's just how God is. He loves His people. He loves the people that He has made. And we see this in Jesus. See, when Jesus took on flesh, in in Matthew chapter 9, and it's worth uh, turning your Bibles over there, in Matthew chapter 9, uh, Jesus is traveling all over the place. He's healing and teaching and casting out demons, and the the crowds flock to them, flock to see Jesus. And as Jesus looks out across the crowds, when He looks out across the crowds, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36... Matthew 9.36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. He had compassion on them. That word compassion, it's only ever used of Jesus in the Gospels. And it's always about how Jesus saw crowds of people. And the word compassion, it's it's kind of derived from, um, from the word entrails, like the entrails of your guts. Uh, In other words, it's saying Jesus felt gut-wrenching for people. And that's just how Jesus sees people. With gut-wrenching compassion, because that's how God saw Nineveh. And so when Jesus sees a a group of rowdy students um, causing havoc, He doesn't condemn them. He has gut-wrenching compassion for them as a a lost people who need a saviour. When Jesus sees the commuters pouring out of their buses and filling their offices in the city, He feels a gut-wrenching compassion for each and every one of them. When Jesus sees the comfortable middle classes building up their nest eggs so they can enjoy the finer things in life and a comfortable retirement, when He sees the young people heading out for a gig when he sees the crowds at Hagley Oval worshipping the Black Caps and Kane Williamson, he doesn't despise them or scorn them. He loves them. He has this gut-wrenching compassion for each and every single one of them. That is how Jesus sees people. But that's not how Jonah saw Nineveh, is it? How do you see people? I think the reason we struggle to share those around us is it's not because we live in a hostile culture. I think it's sometimes we just don't, we don't love them enough. We don't have the gut-wrenching, gut-wrenching compassion for them that Jesus does. We love our vine, whatever the thing, that, the, the great thing that God has provided for you that brings you joy or comfort Have you fallen in love with that? Instead of the lost people that live around you. Sometimes we just don't love people enough to be willing to suffer the embarrassment of talking to them about Jesus. I mean, it's not like anyone's going to chop our head off or put us in jail. We just can't be bothered, really, sometimes. Or even worse, if we're honest, maybe we're a bit like Jonah. Maybe our 
our heart is not in sync with God's. We don't have that gut-wrenching compassion that Jesus has. Maybe we're more like Jonah and we care about our pathetic little vine. We care more about our comfort than we do about the salvation of hundreds and thousands of people who don't know Jesus. Uh, in Matthew chapter 9 there, if, um, if you've still got it, uh, when Jesus crowds of people, when he, uh, when he looks with compassion upon them, he tells his disciples there are two features of the age in which we live. Uh, you can see that in uh, verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. The first feature is that the harvest is plentiful. There is no shortage of opportunity. There is no issue with supply. There are plenty of people willing to come to Christ. There are plenty of lost people. Uh, One of the things that some other churches in Wellington said as we talked to them about church planting in Wellington, they said, there's plenty of pagans to go around. That's true. Maybe you should think that next time... Uh, a new ministry opens up next to yours. Um, you walk past that, that, that student group on campus. That's not the one that you're affiliated with, but they're still telling people about Jesus. There's plenty of pagans to go around. The second feature is, uh, the second feature of our age that Jesus says is that the workers are few. The workers are few. Not the pastors are few or the missionaries are few. The workers are few. We need people who care enough about their friends to say something. And again, it's not as though our city or our culture is any more challenging than another. Um, to say that, you know, this place is like, you know, r- too hard, it, 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 it's, it's like saying that people in one cemetery are more dead than in another cemetery. The Bible's clear. Without Jesus, we're all equally dead. And I know that some of us can get a bit defeatist as we think about mission and as we think about evangelism, as we think about telling people about Jesus. We can go, New Zealand is so secular these days. We can't teach Bible in schools. Students keep fobbing us off on campus. There's so few Christians anymore. We don't have the influence we used to have. It just feels too hard and too much. And maybe we just need to bunker down and look after our own. But maybe we just need a different mindset. Maybe we need God's heart, God's mindset. Look at it with Jesus' eyes as he has this gut-wrenching compassion. Uh, we try to do this at our church at City on a Hill in Wellington. Uh, rather than seeing Wellington as the godless capital of New Zealand, which statistically it is, uh, there are more atheists in Wellington than anywhere else in New Zealand. Um, it's probably up there with one of the most godless capitals in the Engl- godless cities in the English-speaking world. Rather than uh, kind of getting that, what has happened to the gospel in Wellington? Where are all the churches? Have you seen what the kids are doing these days? No, we try and see it as the city which has the greatest potential for gospel growth. I've got a much better chance of talking to a non-Christian on the street than you do, because there's so many of them in Wellington. Uh, I heard one preacher uh, share this story about a shoe salesman who went to West Africa. The shoe salesman goes to Nigeria um, and after, a des- uh, after six months, he sends this desperate message back home. He says, it's absolutely hopeless. 
no one wears any shoes, bring me home immediately. Uh, And so he is brought back and then they send another shoe salesman uh, to the same place and six months later he sends back a completely different message. The situation here is amazing. Nobody wears shoes. Please send all the shoes that you've got. You can look at the same situation and you can feel either miserable and defeated or excited, filled with hope and opportunity about what God might do. Jonah saw Nineveh and was miserable. God saw it and was moved with mercy and compassion. And Jesus sees the crowds and he is moved with gut-wrenching compassion. And so the question that we're getting asked here by Jonah chapter 4 is, do you love people enough? Do you love your friends and family enough to tell them about Jesus? Do you love your city and your country enough to bear the cost of seeing lost people saved? And that cost might be anything, maybe moving to a different part of the the town you live in, maybe uh, getting involved in a new ministry you haven't been doing before, Uh, maybe uh, thinking about whether you ought to uh, shift track in your career to to explore uh, full-time gospel ministry, maybe even thinking about moving to another part of New Zealand that has greater needs than where you are, or maybe even another country. Do you love your city? Do you love your country? Do you love your world enough? Not just the city, but the people in it, right? Um, Do you love it enough to bear the cost of seeing lost people saved. Because God is the compassionate evangelist. He longs for people to turn back to Him to be saved. And that's the big question that God is asking us here at the end of, chapter, uh, chapter, the end of Jonah. He longs for people to turn back to Him and be saved. But do you? Do you desire what God desires? Are you in sync with this God? the Sovereign Lord, the Gracious Saviour, the Merciful Judge, the Compassionate Evangelist. Does your heart beat for the same thing as His? Why don't you pray with me? Lord, we, um, we thank You for our time in Jonah. Lord, we praise you as the sovereign Lord, the creator of the sea and the dry land. We praise you as our gracious Savior, the one who has rescued us despite our wickedness. And Lord, you are the merciful judge, the one who has not given us what we deserved. And you, Lord, are the compassionate evangelist. Lord, your heart is filled with love for lost people all over our city, all over our country, all over this world. Lord, by your Spirit, give us the same heart to be in sync with you, to love those around us enough to share the great news of Jesus with them, to pray for them, to invite them, to care for them, to do whatever we can to see them move from death to life with you. And Lord, we thank you for this time that we've been learning from your word. We thank you for the way that you have spoken to us. And Lord, we do pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.